asking for God's will in our lives. It's asking for God's will to be at work and His rule and His reign to be at work in the world. And, and of course, the very first place that we got to decide whether or not we're going to allow God's rule and God's reign is in our own lives. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more today. This last, then the, the second week, we talked about the, the parable of the four soils, and, and it's kind of distressing. You read the parable of the four soils, and, and a sower goes in, and we believe that's, uh, that's probably the Lord Jesus Christ or the Father who's spreading his uh, seed out amongst the, the different parts of, the, of, of uh, different soils. And there's only one soil that actually where the, 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 the seed actually takes root and begins to grow. Um, and the other ones, it doesn't. And so it seems like um, Jesus was teaching his followers at the time, most people are going to reject me. There's only going to be a few whose hearts are prepared. There's only going to be a few of those people who are in good soil who, who both receive and then are obedient um, to the word that they receive instead of either rejecting it outright or it being choked out in their lives. Then we talked about last week, we talked about the parable as we're going through in Matthew chapter 13. Uh, Matthew just kind of lines all these kingdom parables up all in one chapter. It's really neat, really cool to have it all together there. But um, in, in, uh, we talked about the, the parable of the weeds and the, uh, of the uh, wheat and the tares. It's a, it's a parable about, about God going and sowing good seed, but then an enemy comes in an attempt to disrupt and to destroy, and he comes and he sows bad weeds, bad seed amongst the wheat. The, uh, the wheat. And we remember maybe a couple of things about that, that parable is that um, one of the things is, is that this, is, right now, during this time, the last 2,000 years has been a time of God's patience. This is a time of His grace. This is a time that people can come into the kingdom. This is a time that people can be saved. This is a time that people can, can release their sin and their guilt and they can come in and find forgiveness <clears throat> pardon me, through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we also know that this time is going to come to an end one day. That, the, that, the, that this time won't go on forever. That God is going to bring about an end to this day and this age. And at the end of the age, there's going to be a separation between those who came and believed and those who never came to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty telling, pretty, pretty, um, pretty sobering to think about. But we're in a time when, when there are two kingdoms at war. There are two kingdoms in existence, one kingdom within the other. And God is advancing and establishing his kingdom. What we're going to talk today is that God's kingdom is advancing, and it's destined to do so. Uh, God foretold, and this was his plan all along, that, that he would take and, and Jesus Christ would scatter seed amongst people, and, and he did amongst a, a, a select number of believers. And at the end of Jesus' time, at the end of his, whenever he was resurrected there and, and went back up into heaven, there might have been 150 believers. Well, from 150 believers and really from the first 12 believers, there's how many Christians, you suppose, are in the world. There's a, there's a billion believers right there. In, in all of history, that, that small group of people have somehow scattered the seed, and, and somehow there is enough good soil in enough people's lives that they've come to believe in the message that was taught by our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. But it came from a very, very small, very insignificant beginning. And that's the message of the parable that we have today. In Matthew chapter 13, it was read the parables of the mustard seed and the parable I'm going to need some water. Thank you. And the parable of the yeast. So um, in Matthew chapter 13, we're going to begin in verse uh, 31. Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 31. <clears throat> so here's another parable. Jesus, again, talking in parables whenever he talked to the crowds. Um, and he wouldn't, he wouldn't say very plainly what he meant, except these are really great 
uh, great um, stories that kind of help us to understand his point. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all your seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and perch in its branches. Then in verse 33, he told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked all through the dough. Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. That had a prophecy from the Old Testament that talked about this time when Jesus would come and would tell stories and would tell parables, but people wouldn't get it and they wouldn't understand it. And we learned from the parable of the, of the four soils, we learned that part of the reason was is that there are some people, it doesn't matter what they're told. There are some people who it doesn't matter what they see, they will never come to believe. That's why Jesus finally, after he told them many parables and he'd worked amongst them, and he'd worked miracles amongst them, and they had done all of those things, some of the crowd and some of the Pharisees came to him again, and they said, show us some more signs, do some more miracles. And he, he said, you're only going to see one more sign, and that's the sign of Jonah, meaning that you're going to see me die, uh, go uh, be dead for three days, and then be resurrected. But he said, you're not going to see any more signs because if you were going to believe, you would have believed by now. You would have believed the words that I told you. You would have already believed in the miracles, but because you haven't believed in those, you won't even believe if you see a man come back from the dead, right? That's a hard heart, isn't it? It's a hard heart when someone can say, I'm going to die, and then three days later, I'm going to bring myself back to life. Who does that, right? No one, right? It can't be done. It's totally impossible except by the power of God. There will be people that no matter what they're told, no matter what they see, they will never believe. And unfortunately, that's the majority of the population, isn't it? It's a majority of people who will never believe. But anyway, on to our parable today. The parable today is this, this, this idea of something starting very small and then growing into hugeness, growing into something large, something incredibly significant. And so what we have here is in, uh, in the first parable in verse 31 is the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. Have you seen it? Have anyone seen, you know, we don't ever, anyone sow a bunch of mustard seed? Yeah, me either. Uh, but you see them in the little necklaces, right? That's the only frame of reference I have, right? You, they put them in these little tiny cases. And what does a mustard seed look like? It's like a speck, isn't it? It's incredibly small. It's tiny. It's itty bitty. It's like a. It's like a just a speck. It's something you would. You would it's like the head of a pin, uh, a, a straight pin. Very small. Um, but what he's what the what the parable is and what this is all about is it is the smallest of seeds, but it grows into the largest of plants. Right. So a mustard seed would grow into a tree that would be maybe ten or fifteen feet high in a garden, and you can imagine somewhere where someone were growing barley and wheat or other things that have a much larger kernel. Right. They would grow up in what be about this tall. But then you 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 plant the smallest of seeds. You plant a mustard seeds, and it can grow ten or fifteen feet high. So much so that birds perch. On their, uh, on their branches in later in the season when the wood kind of hardens, when the plant kind of hardens that they grow. And so what Jesus is saying here is that the kingdom of God is like that. It starts very, very small, very insignificant, and in the end, it becomes larger and greater than anything else. Right? So that's really, the, that's really the extent of the parable. And, and uh, <coughs> 
the uh, and and the same way goes with yeast. You know, yeast in the Bible is usually a reference to is usually used as an illustration for sin, right? Because yeast is something very small that you mix in a in a uh, in, in amongst a bunch of dough and flour and I don't know what else you cook with other things like maybe water and oil, I would guess. But uh, all those things and you, a little bit of yeast though goes and 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 uh, takes and and uh, and and spreads throughout the the entire uh, dough. But the thing is, the reason why it's it's compared to sin is yeast, whenever it's active, it's actually decomposing and it's breaking down the things that are in the dough, right? And it's, and it's decomposing and it's spreading all throughout. And, and oftentimes the Bible says that sin is like yeast. A little bit of it will ruin an entire batch, right, of, of dough. But here, um, Jesus is saying that yeast is being compared to uh, the kingdom of God. And again, the little bit of yeast amongst three batches of flour or three, three uh, batches of dough will, will uh, permeate the entire group. And that's what he's saying here about the kingdom of God. Now, the thing that I think is exciting about this, the thing that I, that I love about this, is that this is not the first time that the kingdom of God would be described as something that would come from something so small and insignificant that no one would believe in it. No one would think anything would happen to it, but it would become larger and greater and more significant than anything else on the planet. So turn with, you, with me. If you have your Bibles with you, we're going to be in Daniel chapter 2 for just a little bit this morning. I'm going to read with you. So you remember the story of Daniel. What happened to the Israelites in about 539 B.C., they were overtaken by a group of Babylonians. It was actually a second Babylonian empire. There had been one much, much earlier, but in the time of the patriarchs. This was essentially, some people call it the Neo-Babylonian empire, and it was under a ruthless king whom we remember as one of the hardest names to spell in all of the Old Testament, King what? Nebuchadnezzar, yes, if you could spell it, you're doing very well. Nebuchadnezzar, um, King Nebuchadnezzar. So here in the story, let me tell you where I've just kind of plopped us this morning in, in, uh, in Daniel chapter 2. So Daniel and a lot of his countrymen have been removed from um, Israel, and they've been taken up. They've, they've been taken up over kind of north and east over into Babylon, and they've been ca- taken captive, and that's exactly what they were. They were removed from their homeland and transplanted there so that, the, so that Babylon, this is one of the ways that Babylon on, um, asserted its kingdom, it would take people and it would mix them all up. It would take people and take them captive and, and bring the most talented and the most gifted of, of uh, all people of, of one conquered uh, people and bring them back to their kingdom so that they could be part of their kingdom and part of their empire. And then basically they would leave all the peasants and all the poor um, there in their cities. And that's what happened to, to uh, Israel back in those days. So here, Daniel is actually a captive. He's actually gone off, and there's this terrible king, Nebuchadnezzar, who is uh, uh, just fearsome, just, uh, just very brutal, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, and he one night has a dream, and he's so distressed by this dream that he asks for all of his wise men to come and to tell him what his dream means, but he doesn't want to just hear you know, them make up something, so he has a little catch. He calls his wisest men together, and he says, here's what I want you to do. So that I know that your message is true, so that I know your interpretation is true, I want you to first tell me what my dream is, and then you can tell me the interpretation, right? So that was the deal. And he said, oh, and by the way, if you don't, I'm killing you all. So, you know, he was king. He could do that. He was brutal. Um, and so uh, there, there was panic. You know, it talks about that, the, that the, there was a guy who was sent out from the king, and he was looking all over for someone who could come up with the answer to the king's dream. Well, it just so happened that someone remembered that there was a man named Daniel, 
and that Daniel, perhaps Daniel's God, would give Daniel the interpretation of the dream. And so Daniel um, and the, the king's messenger went, and, and Daniel asked to set up a time, and he prayed to God, and he said, God, give me the interpretation for this dream. And Daniel's God, the one we know as Jehovah, gave Daniel the dream, the same dream that he had given Nebuchadnezzar. And then he also gave him the interpretation. Astounding, amazing stuff. So, so here's what the nature of the dream is. And in, in, uh, as Daniel tells King Nebuchadnezzar what his dream was, pretty amazing. So, uh, Daniel chapter two, we're beginning in verse thirty-one. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Daniel two, verse thirty-one. You looked, O king, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue is made of pure gold. Its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. The iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold were broken into pieces at the same time and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. Okay, so so he's going to go on, and I didn't include the part, but basically on the, the latter parts of the verses, um, this is what Daniel is, says is the meaning of the dream. If you'll bring up that uh, chart, please, sir, or that picture. You got the picture? Oh, okay. Well, let me just tell you then. Okay, so in the picture we have uh, in the picture we have um, we have the head that's made out of gold, and that is a picture that is a representation of this Neo Babylonian Empire. This is a picture of of, uh, of Nebuchadnezzar's empire. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar's empire. It, it is made up of gold, and that's the the head section. Then you have the chest and the arms, and those are made up of of silver, and that would be the coming. Medo-Persian Empire that would come under, you remember Darius, right? You remember Darius from the Old Testament? That would come under Darius as, as uh, the Medo-Persian Empire came and swept over and actually put down the Babylonian Empire. Then there would be a Grecian or a Greek Empire that would come and rule, and that was the belly and the thighs of bronze. And then later on, there would be um, another iron uh, um, empire that, that was the legs, and that iron empire was the Roman empire that would come and would basically rule the earth for, my goodness, what it would end up being about 500, 600 years uh, that would come and rule the earth. But the interesting thing is, is in the feet, right? The feet was this odd uh, conglomeration of iron and, and clay, referring to a kingdom that maybe wasn't all um, unified, referring to a kingdom that was, that was strong and structured and, and uh, hey, yeah, there we go. Um, and and es- essentially what's talked about here is what we believe is what that's referring to is an end times kingdom that would be like the Roman Empire, that would have uh, similarities to the Roman Empire that, w- that would come. So this future kingdom... This future uh, kingdom of the, of the ten toes and the feet is the kingdom that's restored that we believe that we see in other parts of Daniel and also in the book of Revelation that will come into existence and exert a world power over the earth until Jesus Christ comes in power and puts it all down, brings it all down. But here we have basically, you know, from the Babylonian Empire and then the following the Medo-Persian Empire and then the Greek empires and then the Roman Empire and then this end-time kind of Roman Empire that's basically at one point 
there's going to be someone come. It's going to be a small stone that's cut out, but not by human hands. It's going to come and crush the feet. And once the feet are crushed, the whole thing comes down. And basically what he's saying here is there will be an end to the kingdom of men. And there will be ushering in the final kingdom established uh, by Jesus Christ and established the kingdom of God that would come and, uh, and destroy the kingdoms. Um, it's interesting, too. Look with me in verse uh, 35. In verse 35, Then the iron, the clay, the, the bronze, the silver, then the gold were broken into pieces at the same time and became like chaff on the threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. What this is a reference to is the insignificant start of the kingdom of God, about how Jesus came. And re- imagine how Jesus came. Jesus came what? In royalty? Jesus came as like a, the, you know, some of the ruling power on the earth. He was like the prince to a kingdom. No. He came and he was born into a conquered kingdom. He was born to a conquered people. And he came and he was born of, of parents who were poor. They were peasants. He was no one, Right? But he came in that insignificant way, and what he would do and how he would live would be incredibly significant and incredibly powerful until ultimately, right, even the Roman Empire was affected in the 300 ADs uh, by, the, by, the, uh, by Christianity, by the kingdom of God that was established by the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, incredible stuff, how it started from just a small, insignificant thing and grew into something incredible that filled the whole earth. And so now we have people right today in America, in a whole other land, on a whole other continent, across the sea, we have people today worshiping all over the world this morning as people gather this morning to celebrate the Savior who came and the one who established the kingdom, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we worship this morning amongst other believers who worship this morning because of this great, this great stone that became a mountain uh, and filled the entire earth, filled the whole earth. Amazing stuff, amazing, incredible stuff. How in the world, how many, how many, how many religions have there been that started off small and were, and they were quashed? You know, how many of us, uh, how many of you still uh, hear about worship of Molech from the Old Testament? Gone, dead. How about Mordecai? Um, yeah, not Mordecai. Uh, oh, man, his name's not coming to me this morning. Some of the Babylonian, some of the Palestinian, uh, um, uh, ancient Palestinian um, uh, gods that were worshipped there. How many hear about the worship of Baal now still? How about the, how about the ancient Egyptians and, and what they worshipped? All gone, all on the, on, the, on, the, on, the, on the heap of history, all of, it, all of it gone, all of it done. But this small group that started with 12 people, in the New Testament, we still worship today. It's amazing because God's kingdom all along was destined to advance. And that's the, there are two points that I want to bring about this morning. The first one is this. God's kingdom is destined to advance. Listen, I know because I feel like you sometimes, right? We all feel like there are times that we feel like we as Christians are the underdogs, right? We, we feel like our society tends to move further and further away from God. We feel like, you know, just like happened in Europe, and they, they, they refer to the Europe as a postmodern age, that they've, they've basically become so, uh, so educated and whole, so, uh, so very highly intelligent that they, now they really don't have any need for religion anymore. And so all of Europe, except for maybe some, uh, some, some very localized um, 
uh, uh, stuff that's happened in Germany today, but mostly all of Europe for the last hundred years has been moving away from God. And, and we see it in our own nation, don't we? In the last 40 years, the United States has been moving away from God and, and uh, over and over again. And, and I know as Christians, we feel like we're, we're part of a losing battle. Right? You see what's happening in the Middle East? I was reading somewhere that in Iraq, since 2006, a million Christians have moved out of Iraq because of persecution. How about in Egypt? Anybody hear about churches burning in Egypt? Uh, just, it's just every week another church is going up in flames as persecution is increasing in the Middle East against believers, against Christians, against people who believe like you and I believe, brothers and sisters that we have in the Middle East being persecuted against. Does it feel like we're facing a, a losing battle? Listen, I know it feels that way, and I know there's sometimes where, you know, I know some of you work in places where you really can't say what you believe, right? Kind of a strange time that we're in, isn't it? But I want to remind you this, is that God's kingdom is destined to advance. Listen, listen, this, this picture of this, of this colossi, of this colossal in, uh, in Nebuchadnezzar's dream that Daniel interpreted for him is this, is that there will be kingdom after kingdom after kingdom that will exert worldwide reign and worldwide rule, and every one of them will come to an end. And the only one will stand is the kingdom of God. It will crush and put down every other kingdom. It will outlast all the rest of them. It will be the only thing standing in the end, amen, is what you and I have come to believe. It, this is it. This is the only one that will stand the test of time. It, you know, um, some of the prophets, even Jesus um, uh, talked about this. It talks about, talks about history. It talks about, the, it talks about how people and ideas and religions and all those things will come to pass away. But the Word of God, what, will stand forever. Listen, you and I aren't fighting a losing battle. Matter of fact, we're on the winning side. We just feel that way sometimes. We just, we just wonder what's going on around us, and we're, we're maybe confused about what's going around us because we know and we believe that what we have has the power of God behind it, right? Um, I, think it's, I think it's interesting the way that God loves to do this. He loves to start with something small and insignificant and do something incredibly powerful with it, and it happens all throughout the Scriptures, Right? Think about the, some of the very first actions of God towards his people in, 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 of, of Israel. Whenever they were in Egypt, God um, struck the Egyptians with plagues, so much so that they were a defeated people living as slaves in a foreign country. But God orchestrated that, it, that those, the armies of Pharaoh, one of the most powerful armies in those days, were defeated by God for a bunch of slaves. And matter of fact, not only were they freed up and they were free to leave there, but they plundered Egypt. Do you know what I'm saying? There, God had, had done so much to fight against Egypt on their behalf that when they finally were ready to leave, the people of Egypt were giving them their, their things. They were giving them their gold. They were giving them their jewels and said, please just, just get out of here. And it all happened because God fought for them when they were small and insignificant and he was doing something powerful, and that he was showing himself to be the freer of slaves, the freer of those who had been uh, enslaved, and he still frees slaves today, amen? He still frees people who have been enslaved by sin and death. 
How about David? You know, what a, is there a more perfect example? When David came upon the battlefield, you remember what happened? There was a Goliath there, and this Goliath was huge. He was enormous. And he came out and he defied all of these soldiers of Israel, all these guys who were, you know, they were, they were in armor and they were tough. They were, you know, some of these were battle-weary guys. Some of these had fought in a lot of battles before. But when Goliath came and he stood before them all, there wasn't a mighty warrior amongst them. They shook in their armor whenever he came, right? But David, who was the youngest son, who was probably a teenager at the time, said, this guy's not going to defy my God. This guy's not going to defy the the army of the God of Israel. And and he said, matter of fact, God's going to give him over into my hand. And so they went and remembered they tried to put the armor on him of Saul, and they tried to put the the armor on him, but it, it wouldn't fit. Why? Because he was too small. And God here again took something very small and he accomplished something very great. And you can read the incredulity, whatever that word is, the incredulousness of it all when it says this. It says, and so David slew the giant with a sling and a stone. How does that happen? Listen, it only happens when God fights for his people. And he does it over again. And matter of fact, God loves to fight for his people when they can't do for themselves. He loves this. He loves to take someone who, who is insignificant, someone who is small, and, and he does it all through. You know, how about to lead the Israelites? We believe Moses must have had some sort of speech impediment or something because he, he basically asked for help to speak for the people when God, appeared, <coughs> when God appointed Aaron to help him. Uh, who, who, who a better leader than someone who can't speak well, right? But through Moses, he led the Israelites out of, out of Egypt and led them out into their freedom. How about, again, the Lord Jesus Christ who grew up in one of the most backward provinces of one of the most conquered people of all time? <clears throat> who, what did he do? He taught for, three or four, for two or three years. And who were his followers? Some of the greatest people on the planet? Is that, is that who advanced the kingdom of God then? No, it was mostly the, the poor and, and the sinners who came to follow him and believe in him. That was primarily the people who followed him. Um, <clears throat> he never even left the region that he was from. Ultimately, he fell into the hands of his enemies, and they had him killed a shameful death. And God cut out that stone, and he used him to establish the kingdom that would rule and reign forever and would ultimately rule and reign above every other religion, every other society, every other thought, every other philosophy, the kingdom of God will advance. Amen? Let me tell you one of my pet peeves. One of my pet peeves is this, is when people say of themselves or they say of this church, we're too what? Small. I I don't want to hear it. (laughs) Right? I don't I don't want to hear it. See, when you're too small, you're exactly the right size in the kingdom of God, right? Because God desires to do things that no one else can explain, that there is no other explanation before except that He showed up and He did and He fought on our behalf, that He could be the God, He could be the one to receive the glory, right? Listen, when you're small, you are just the right size in the kingdom of God. When you can't accomplish what God has called you to, when you can't do what he's asked you to do, you're, you're at just the right spot because then you, all you can do is say, Lord, I believe you called me to this, but I can't do it. You're going to have to show up, and you're going to have to work, and you're going to have to act. You've got to fight for me or this won't happen, right? One of my pet peeves, I never want to hear, 
We're too small. I don't want to hear it. The, the Bible's all throughout the Bible, and over and over and over, God, God loves to do the, use the small, to use the insignificant, to accomplish his great purpose. Amen? Amen. Okay. The last thing I want to I say is this, um, is that the, the kingdom of God advances all around us as we let it advance in us. L- let me put this another way. The kingdom of God will advance around you when you let the kingdom of God advance in you. Does that make sense? Okay. So, gentlemen, um, let me, we just got back from Promise Keepers. Let me tell you a little something. I don't know about you, those of you who have teenagers or have had teenagers, you're going to want the rule and the reign of God over your teenagers' lives, right? Because, man, you worry about what's going to happen to them out when they get out on their own. Amen? You're, you're going to worry about what's going to happen. You're going to worry about the, the choices that your son or your daughter makes. You're going to worry about that. And you're going to want to know, God, be, you, you know, God, you establish your rule. You establish your lane. You protect them. You oversee them. You help them make good judgment. You help them do great things. You help them uh, make the right choices. And you're going to want the rule and the reign of Christ in their lives. Listen, let me tell you, there is no greater way to advance the kingdom of God for your family than for you to see the kingdom of God advance in your life. Let me tell you what I'm talking about. How does the kingdom of God advance in your life? Let me tell you this. It's when I don't hit the snooze button in the mornings, I hit my knees in prayer. It's when instead of reaching and and hitting the remote on the television, I hit the word of God instead. See, the kingdom of God advances in you and in me whenever we day after day and year after year, we hit the word and we intercede for our children and we intercede for our wives, or you intercede for your husbands for years. Listen, there is nothing like walking with the Lord Jesus Christ every day, day after day, for days and months and years. He will change your life. Amen? You will never be the same. But if you want to be the same, if you want to remain the same, don't be in His presence. Don't go to him in prayer. Don't, don't be in the word because it'll change your life. But if you want to see the kingdom of God come into your family, the kingdom of God's got to advance in your life. You've got to surrender to it. You've got to say, Lord, I want your kingdom in my life. I want your rule and your reign. I, I, I want to see you. I want to be down on my knees. I want to be praying for my kids, not today because they're in trouble, but I want to pray for them for years knowing that their future is dependent upon the God of this kingdom that we pray to. Amen. The kingdom of God advances when we show some care and concern for other people. The, the kingdom of God advances when you share a meal with someone who's lonely. The kingdom of God advances when you, when you care enough to listen to someone and to hear their story about where they come from, looking and hoping for an opportunity that you might point them to the God, your Savior, the one who saved you and forgave you when they need saving and, uh, and they need someone to turn to. That is the Lord Jesus. He is the one. So... Um, you know, uh, <clears throat> that's it. When, when you walk with the Lord every day, when you do that day after day for years, um, he'll change your life. And the kingdom of God will grow in you um, like nothing else, like never before. I want to point you to one more verse, and this is how we'll close today. Just turn over in Matthew, if you're still in Matthew, back to Matthew chapter 11. I want to show you something real quickly. This is a, I'm going to just pull one verse out. I hate to do this. I'm just going to pull out one verse and tell you what it's about. So 
So Jesus has been talking about John the Baptist. And John the Baptist, we know, came and just ferociously told people, repent. Matter of fact, he was so ferocious that, that actually, uh, right, one of the kings had him killed uh, because of his um, uh, telling him that he needed to repent, apparently, or that he needed to repent of his, or that he needed to repent of those kinds of ways. But look with me in, in uh, Matthew chapter 11. Look with me in verse 12. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing, advancing, and forceful men lay hold of it, is the way the NIV translated Read that with me again. Since the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing, and forceful men lay hold of it. Let me tell you just a tiny bit about those words, that, that Greek word for forcefully advancing and forceful men. That term, forcefully advancing, can mean literally forcefully advancing, like crowding into something. Like the kingdom of God, get this, crowded into a broken world and took foothold here because we were in enemy territory. You keep hearing me say this. Because it, and it took a, a, a foothold here. Or it can mean kind of the opposite. The kingdom of God came and it was pushed back like the world rejected and pushed back on it. Like it, was, it, it had to be forceful because, because the world was pushing back on the kingdom of God, meaning that Jesus Christ came and John the Baptist came and other men like it to advance this coming kingdom, this way of salvation that would be known through the Lord Jesus Christ, and the world pushed back on it, but it crowded in, right? This idea, this is what I really want to leave you with is the end. And has been forcefully advancing, and listen to what it says, and forceful men, what? Lay hold of it. Turn to your neighbor and say, forceful men, what? Lay hold of it. Do you see what it's saying? It's saying forceful men grab hold of this thing. Forceful men say, I want in the kingdom. That forceful men come and they say, I've heard this story about the kingdom of God coming through the Lord Jesus Christ. I've heard about how I might be freed from my sins by accepting the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and coming to him by faith. I've heard this and I want my part. I want to grab hold of it. I want to lay hands. I want to put my hands on it and hold on to it. I want to lay hold of it. And listen, that idea of forceful man, I love the imagery here because it talks about I want all of this kingdom I can get. I want to lay hold of it. I want to grab it. I want, to, I want it in my life. I want it in my home. I want it in my family. I want to see it in my church. I want to see it in my children. I want to see it in my coworkers. I want this kingdom I want this rule. I want God's rule. I want God's reign in my life. Amen. Is that what you want? I pray it is. I pray it is because, listen, folks, I tell you what, um, can, can you remember a time in your life, and, and I'd be interested to hear, you know, maybe some, some of you folks who have walked a few more years than I have, but I can't remember a time in my life when there was such an absence of spiritual leadership, of godly leadership in our country, especially I'm referring to that place we call Washington, D.C. Um, I sorry, apologize for using that term in your presence, ladies. Um, no, I'm just kidding. But, you, you know, where are the men who have grown up? Where are the men who have taken hold of the kingdom and say, I want this for my country? Where are the men who would say, I want God's rule and God's reign here? Where are the men who believe in these things? Listen, if they don't come out of homes like yours and your children's homes, right? If they're not your grandkids, where are they? Who are they? We've got to be about building the kingdom of God in our families. Amen, men? We've got to be about grabbing the kingdom and laying hold of it and saying, I want God's rule and God's reign in my life. 
because ultimately what I know is this, what we sang just a little bit ago, God's rule and his reign in my life is good. Amen? I, I need it. I need his rule. I need his reign. And listen, every day that you get up and you hit the scriptures or you hit your knees in prayer, every day that you do with that, you're advancing the kingdom of God in your, in your own life and you're advancing it in your home. Every day that you mess up and you don't do it, Listen, listen, the winner is not the guy who gets it right every day. The winner is the guy who doesn't quit. The winner is the guy who messes up and goes a week or goes a month or whatever, and he doesn't get up and he doesn't do it. He's not seeking the kingdom of God, but he doesn't get up, give up. He perseveres through those times. He knows that there's kind of an ebb and flow to this Christian life, but he wants the kingdom of God. We're going to talk about that a lot next week, about the priority of the kingdom of God in our lives. We're going to talk about that next week. Let's suffice it for this. Let's close. Would you, uh, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that you have established a kingdom and just what an obscure start your kingdom had in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. What, what, what an insignificant start the Lord Jesus had. But Lord God, because of your power and because of your fighting to advance your kingdom, the kingdom of God, your, your gospel is everywhere in the world. It is forcefully advancing, and it is being opposed at the same time. There are people, there's evil people in the world who are opposing your work in the Middle East and in Asia and in Africa, and even in our society, people who are opposed to your work, opposed to your name, and opposed to your kingdom. Heavenly Father, just as surely as there were people opposed to your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, we're going to face opposition as well. Father, we pray. Your kingdom come. Let it come into our lives, Lord God. I pray for every man who's here, represented here this morning. I pray for them, Lord God, that you would come into their lives powerfully, that they would grab hold of your kingdom, and they would grab hold of your rule, that they would be in your word and in prayer for their families, in prayer for our country, in prayer for this lost world day after day. I pray that you would walk with them for years, Lord God, that you would help them to remember to persevere and to never give up seeking after your kingdom. May you be first in our lives, Lord God. May you grow in our families. May you grow in our lives. May your kingdom be established more firmly. May we have a greater desire for it, Lord God, I pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for that one day we're all going to be in your kingdom. Your kingdom is going to be all that's left, and we can rejoice with you, the king who fought on behalf of his people and who rules and reigns forever. It's in Jesus' great name that we pray. Amen. 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 Listen, y'all have a great week. Thanks for being here today. The valley low, that's where